Well, we're continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount, and you remember uh, this first discourse of the five discourses in Matthew, it's really about this theme of kingdom righteousness. Uh, What we said about Matthew as a whole is it teaches about Jesus as king, it identifies him as the long-awaited Davidic Messiah, it does that, but not only does that, it teaches about his kingdom, which will come over the earth. But then it also does this. It teaches us how to live in light of those realities. It teaches us how to live as kingdom citizens. And really, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is at the core of that. It's teaching us what does kingdom righteousness look like? What does it look like to live as a citizen of the king? Put it another way, as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, really this is an instruction manual in a sense Uh, core teaching for us, for disciples of Christ, those who follow the King. And so as we've been walking through this, we've learned from Jesus, uh, how do we go to the Old Testament law? How do we go to the Old Testament law even and look for how to obey the law from the heart? We might not obey the external command in the same way because uh, I can eat bacon, right? But uh, the point being, there's still a heart. There's a heart of God's law that we can still pursue as disciples. And Jesus has instructed us in those things through chapter 5. But we said last week, as we turn this corner into chapter 6, uh, what Jesus is doing is he's now teaching about right, what we might call righteous habits. Righteous habits. The old word, and it's still a fine word, would be piety. Piety. Uh, The idea is that, you know, some of the laws in chapter 5, they come up, they pop up on occasion, and so you need to know what to do in those scenarios. But what does it look like on a day-to-day basis? What righteous habits, how do you pursue those from the heart? Jesus doesn't want just the external action, the external action of disciples. That's what the scribes and Pharisees do. They obey this external word, but they don't go to the heart. And just like chapter 5 drove us back to the heart, chapter 6, Jesus has been driving us back to the heart. How do you practice righteousness in a way that is honoring to God? And we talked last week about this idea of uh, when you you are uh, pursuing righteous habits, you're either doing it for people, namely for yourself or for others, and for the reward you might be able to get from that, or you're doing it for God and the reward you would get from him. And Jesus talked to us last week about what does that look like when uh, to practice righteousness in terms of charitable giving, doing merciful acts. And then he began to talk to us about that in prayer. And he kind of gave us uh, an instruction about the manner of prayer, right? Uh, don't be uh, like the play actors who, who position themselves for notoriety, for, to be seen, Really, a true disciple, whether they're out in public or whether they're in their innermost storeroom in the dark, God is there. God is in every place. He's in the secret place as well as in all other places. And if you're seeking reward from him, then it shouldn't matter whether you're in your storeroom or whether you're out in public praying because you seek the Father's reward. You seek to honor and please him as a father. But prayer is so important to Jesus that he actually kind of interrupts. There's a, there's a key structure you see in chapter six. It always ends with this, the father who sees in secret will reward you. We'll see that about fasting. So Jesus is going to talk about giving. He's already talked about giving. He's uh, talked about prayer and he's going to talk about fasting, but prayer is so central uh, to this kingdom righteousness and living a righteous life that he digresses and he takes time to unfold prayer. 
and we're glad for that. Think about it like this. What would the, as we walk through, we're going to walk through the Lord's Prayer. I'll give you a heads up. We're only going to get through the first three petitions this week, and that's okay. We need to take time to understand the Lord's Prayer. But as we walk through the Lord's Prayer, it's really familiar. Uh, what would the answer to the Lord's Prayer look like? What would the answer to the Lord's Prayer look like? And if you think about it, the answer to the Lord's Prayer would look like, well, the, 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 the actions and lifestyle that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount and all the other actions is the answer to the Lord's Prayer. Or put it another way, you know, as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we understand this is a high standard that God is calling Christians to, and it's only attainable because uh, in the New Covenant, of which Jesus is the mediator, when one repents, turns allegiance from sin and self, and entrusts oneself to the King, to Christ, and follows Him, puts the Holy Spirit in their lives so that they can obey these things, but how do you call on God's power to live this life? Well, in prayer. In prayer. Prayer is central. It's essential to the Christian life. We've already begun to see that last week as Jesus has assumed that his disciples will want to pray to their heavenly Father. You can think about it like this, too. Here's another way to think about prayer in the Christian life. How do you know what you actually believe? How do you know what you actually believe? You see, you can know all the right facts and the right doctrine and say the right answers about God and the scriptures, but what you really believe comes out when you pray, doesn't it? What you really believe comes out when you're in that inner storeroom and you go to God in prayer, right? What you believe about God comes out in prayer. Here's the beautiful thing about what, where we're going, right? If we struggle with prayer, we really do. All of us do. I do. Why? Because we're, prayer admits dependence. Prayer admits weakness. Prayer admits need. And we are proud people that want to go it alone and don't want to be dependent on God. We want to be self-sufficient rulers in our own right rather than dependence on God. And so in this life of disciple, it takes some work to learn how to pray well. And so Jesus knew that his disciples would need instruction on how do you pray? How do you pray? So if you struggle with prayer like me this morning, if you struggle with prayer, Jesus gives us instruction. And really what that does is maybe you're one of those people that's like, I just don't know how, so I'm not going to do it. But now we get some instruction, some very practical, doable instruction on how to pray. And so it leaves us with no excuse. We can pray. We ought to pray because Jesus instructs us in how to pray. So as we launch into this section this morning and continue to think about prayer, here's the big idea, the main idea that where we're going this morning that Jesus wants us to get away from, the, to, to take away from this text, and it's this, pattern your prayers by submitting your needs under the priority of the Father's plan. Pattern your prayers by submitting your needs under the priority of the Father's plan. And that starts, before we get into the Lord's Prayer proper, it um, starts in verses 7 and 8. And really the key idea in verses 7 and 8 is that Jesus wants his disciples to go to the Father with, not to, not to manipulate the Father, no manipulation in the prayer, but dependence. No manipulation, but dependence in prayer. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, again, Jesus is assuming that this is going to be part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Christ, 
do not heap up empty phrases. Now, that's a, it's actually, that, 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 that translation is uh, trying to translate one word, and it only occurs this one time in the whole New Testament, uh, and it's this idea of uh, kind of a, a, the speech like a stammerer. That's really what the verb is trying to communicate, speech like a stammerer. Well, what's a stammerer do? I have a friend who struggles with stammering. He's worked uh, on that his whole life, but, but what does a stammerer do? They say the same thing over and over again. They say the same thing over and over again. So uh, what Jesus is talking about here, he's either talking about kind of just babbling on uh, in prayer, or he's talking about length. Uh, you just say the same thing over and over again in prayer. And what he says in verse 8, or sorry, in the latter part of verse 7, he's talking about many words. That's the issue at hand, many words, a wordiness in speech. The idea being you say the same thing over and over again, uh, and it, it lengthens your prayer, yes. Um, but Jesus says, don't do that. Now, what's interesting here is don't do it, not as last week we were talking about the play actors, the hypocrites, right? We talked about that idea of a hypocrite as a play actor. But this time, he doesn't target the, the play actors in the Jewish culture. In fact, he targets foreigners, Gentiles. And so we think about this for a second. It's like, okay, who are Gentiles, uh, who are foreigners praying to? Well, they're praying to false gods, aren't they? Uh, they're, they're praying. Uh, they think they're praying anyway, but who are they praying to? They're praying to false gods. And, and you can even look at uh, um, extra biblical literature, and you can see um, you know, uh, foreigners' prayers. And one of the things you would see if you saw that is that lengthiness, right, and wordiness, and a repetition of particular phrases um, to try to do what? Well, Jesus says, don't heap up empty phrases. Don't keep saying the same thing over and over again as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And the idea of being heard here, it's the idea of being heeded, being listened to, being listened to. So let's, let's put this all together. What are they doing? They're saying the same thing over again. They're heaping up these phrases. Why? Because they want to be heard. They want to be heard. They want to be heard. And they think because of their wordiness, because of the length of their prayers, they're going to be heard by God. And even if you were to just glance down at verse 8 for a second, we can see that what Jesus is combating is the idea of uh, what, what are they wanting, right? Uh, their needs. Their needs, right? That's, that's why you could look at... Um, uh, foreigners or Gentiles, and why are they coming to the gods, so to speak, and why are they heaping up these phrases? Why are they making lengthy speech? They want to be heard. Why do they want to be heard? Because they want their needs met. And really, you can think about it like this. Really, what this is, is manipulation. Manipulation. See, the logic here is, if I say the right thing, if I say enough of the right thing, then God will hear me then God will hear me. Well, what is that but manipulation? Manipulation to get what you want, right? The, the needs that you think you have, it's manipulation. And so that's why Jesus goes on to say in verse 8, don't be like them. Why? Now, here's the reason why, and this is where we contrast what the, the foreigners are doing, what the Gentiles are doing, and what Jesus' disciples should do. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The Father knows what you need before you ask him. See, the idea is, is that 
um, as, as we've seen this father-son language throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount. But when there is repentance, when there's turning allegiance from sin and self to Christ and to following Christ, then you are adopted as a son or daughter of God. You have a father-daughter or father-son relationship and we talked about that last week, that you should desire to have a, a, um, a conversation with the Father. But when you're coming to that, you're not trying to manipulate him as if he doesn't know your needs already or you're bothering him. No, you have a father-son relationship, father-daughter relationship. And so you, you can come confidently that your needs, the Father already knows. Your Father already knows your needs. Now, someone might ask then, it's like, well, wait, 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 wait. If God already knows my needs before I pray to him, why do I need to pray? Isn't that a question we might ask or you've heard other people ask before? Why, why would we pray if the Father only already knows our needs? Well, think about what you just said, right? What you just effectively said is the only reason you go to God in prayer is for your needs. Just like the Gentiles who want to manipulate the gods by their lengthy speech to get what they need. And Jesus isn't even denying that there's a legitimate need here. That's not what we're saying. But what he's saying is you, you, you have legitimate needs. The Father knows that. You don't have to manipulate him, and you don't need to approach him in that. So, but if you say, well, if God already knows my needs, why do I even need to pray? Then you effectively are saying the only reason you go to prayer to God is for your needs, and that is false. That is false. That is not why we go to God in prayer. So if we think about prayer, and why do we need to pray, even if God already knows all things, he's, gonna, he's predetermined all things, he's going to work all things out, why do we need to go to God in prayer? Well, first, we can say this, Jesus commands it and expects it, right? That's number one. Uh, that's, that's a base level reason. We can see that Jesus expects, God the Son incarnate expects his disciples to pray. But it's more than that. It's what we were just saying. Prayer is not fundamentally about our needs, it's not fundamentally about our needs. It, why? What is it about then? It's about that relationship, that father-son, that father-daughter adoptive relationship that we have through Christ and through union with Christ, the, his, his, his one and only, his unique son. It's about the relationship. You see, the reality about, we, we said it already, right? God is sovereign, which means he has decreed everything that's going to come to pass. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so people will say, well, okay, if that's true, then I don't need to pray. Well, that's not true at all. Think about, think about paralleling that idea with evangelism, right? Um, God's already going to save whom he's going to save, so why do I need to evangelize, right? That's the same kind of logic of asking, well, God already knows all things. He's going to bring them to pass, so why do I need to pray? It's the same sort of logic. But here's the thing that's missed, is God not only determines ends, he determines the means to those ends. He determines the means to those ends. And just like evangelism is the means that God uses to save whom he's going to save, so God uses prayer of his people as means to accomplish what he accomplishes in the world. Isn't that amazing? That is absolutely amazing. And this goes back to what we're talking about. The fundamental reality of prayer is the relationship. The relationship. You see, the Father uses the means of prayer to allow himself 
to be moved to do what he is already predestined to do. I'm going to say that again because it's important to understand. It's a both and reality. There's what God sees from his perspective. From his perspective, he already sees all of what he's decreed to pass. He's going to bring it to pass. No questions about it. But then you switch over under our track. How do we experience that? We experience that um, by being able to pray to the Father, knowing that the Father uses the means of prayer to allow himself to be moved to do what he is already predestined to do. And so prayer is a privilege. It is an immense privilege to be able to, uh, because of our relationship, because of our adoptive relationship with the Father, we can come before him and we come before him and we are able to pray and to know that we have this Father in heaven who wants uh, uh, to, to involve us in what he's doing in the world, what he's doing in history. He wants to involve us in that And so he allows us the privilege of praying and being really used as as a means for accomplishing what he is doing in the world. It is amazing, the privilege of prayer. And there's no need to manipulate that in that sort of relationship. God is already king. He's carrying things forward. There's no need to manipulate. There's no need to even prioritize your needs. And that's the thing where Jesus is taking us is you don't need to bring your need. You don't need to come to prayer just for your needs. In fact, you shouldn't. It's not that Jesus is saying, don't pray for your needs. In fact, he's going to tell us how to do that, but that's not why we come to prayer. We don't need to manipulate the father because he already knows our needs. So what we, we, we come in dependence in prayer. We come because of the joyful responsibility of being used as a means by God to carry out what he's carrying out in the world. And so as we think about application, this is super practical, isn't it? Uh, how we think about prayer. So we could ask ourselves some diagnostic questions. When you come to prayer, do you try to manipulate or bargain with God to get what you want? Do you try to manipulate or bargain with God in prayer to get what you want, right? The way you speak, you think, well, I didn't say that quite right, or I didn't think about that quite right, or you're thinking in terms of what I'm saying manipulates or moves God in a, in a sort of way to, do, to get what I want, right? Or we could frame it even in a bigger sense, is your focus in prayer on your needs and getting those needs met by God? If, is that your primary focus? When you go to prayer, is that the only thing you're thinking about? Jesus says, that's not the way you should be praying. That's not the way you should be praying. Rather, and here's the amazing reality, this is so, it's so much better than that. It's so much better than that uh, because Jesus is getting us to think we should come, we should come to him because of the privileged father-son or father-daughter relationship. We get to participate in God's working in the world. You come to him and trust, confident that he already knows what you need before you ask. You have a good and gracious and kind and generous father. He already knows your needs. So we'll get to those, and Jesus gets to those. But are you coming because of what? Because of the relationship, because of what God is doing in the world? Which leads us right into really what we've just seen, right? Jesus is correcting, don't do this. But then he usually, after he says, don't do this, he gives us a positive, here's what you do. And that's really what the Lord's prayer, or really uh, the disciples' prayer, right? The disciples are supposed to be praying this, is all about in verses 9 through 15. And just like we've said, this idea of needs in 9 through 15, the central idea is that it's not that the needs aren't there, 
but it's that the needs are submitted under the Father's plan. That the needs are submitted under the Father's plan. Look at verse 9. Pray then like this. So here's, here's, what, here's what you don't keep up empty phrases. Don't lengthen your prayers to try to manipulate God. What do you do? What is the content of your prayer? And there's a couple things, even just about that preface, pray then like this, that we need to talk about. First, he says, pray like this, or literally in this manner. He didn't say pray exactly this. He says, pray like this, in this manner, in this way. In other words, what Jesus is giving us here, it's not a rote formula. It's not a rote formula. It is a pattern. It is a pattern that he is giving us to pray. And it's a very good one. One way you could think about as we walk through the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, is think about each one of these petitions as a heading. I find that helpful for myself when I'm, uh, I'm praying in this way. Think of each one of those, uh, those petitions as a heading. And you can, once you understand each petition, you can actually put a lot under each one of those headings. And if you do that, you're praying in this way. Second thing to notice is that uh, he's, when he says pray, he's actually using what's known as the present tense in Greek. And all you need to know is that it's the idea that you're doing this over and over again. Uh, it's the idea that Jesus wants, again, that Jesus wants his disciples to be praying regularly. How regularly? Well, I can make a good case, even from the Lord's Prayer, that he wants them to pray something like this at least every day, because one of the petitions is, give us today our daily bread, right? So he expects that his disciples are going to be praying at least once a day, right? Uh, in this sort of way. He wants it to happen regularly. And then the other thing that you need to know, uh, uh, the Greek, there's an added pronoun there. It's like, you pray this way. So he's putting his finger in his che their chest and saying, don't be like the, the, don't be like the play actors. Don't be like uh, the foreigners. But you Pray like this. Pray in this manner. Follow this pattern. Follow this pattern. So then let's get into the prayer proper. The prayer proper. First, there's an address. Our Father in heaven. We call that, the fancy term would be an invocation, right? Uh, you're directly addressing someone, but it's important. Every word is important here. Our Father. We already talked about that uh, adoptive son uh, relationship, adoptive daughter relationship that we have through repentance. When one repents and entrusts themselves to Christ, they become an, a, uh, a, an adopted son or daughter of the Heavenly Father. But here's what you need to know. In the Old Testament, that fa father language wasn't used a ton. It was used, but it wasn't used a ton. But every time it is used, it's in a, what we would call a covenantal relationship. A covenantal relationship. You can even think back all the way to the beginning with um, Adam and God. And the sort of language that's used there, Adam is supposed to be a son in relationship to implied the father. There's a covenant there. Adam is supposed to do a certain thing. A covenant is a relationship, but it's a relationship that has obligations and priorities on both sides. And that makes sense, even as we, even as we walk through the scriptures, Israel is called God's son, 
they have a response. They have a covenant with the father. They have certain responsibilities that they are to carry out. Or even David, the Davidic covenant, uh, the Davidic kings were called sons. And uh, even God calls the Davidic kings, I'm going to be a father to, I was even reading this morning in Chronicles, to Solomon, a son. That's a covenantal relationship because the Davidic king was supposed to be God's uh, leader over Israel and help them obey God's law and accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish in the world. And in a similar way, Jesus brings us into the new covenant. He is that Davidic king. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He brings us into that covenant. And because we're in that covenant, we call on God as father. We, we have a relationship with him, yes, but a covenantal one in which he has promises to us and we also have responsibilities towards him. Here's the other key word in this address, our father. This is a community prayer. This is not an individualized prayer. It is a community prayer. In other words, uh, Christianity is not a, a, a me and God religion. It is a community and God religion. It's the people that Christ has ransomed that he brings together as disciples, the community of disciples, as a household. If we're, we're, if we're all using son and daughter and father language, right, what makes us a household? And we have, we are in this relationship together. And so what you're going to see, you're going to see the hour and the we uh, show up in this prayer because when we pray, we're not just praying about ourselves, although we can do that, but we are praying even for our community. We're praying for one another and we are praying together. You know, in corporate prayer, it's kind of interesting, right? When you pray, you pray as an individual in corporate prayer, but what are you doing? You're not just raising your individual needs, but you're praying on behalf of everyone else before the throne of God, right? That, that's, that's the idea and that's what Jesus is talking about here. Corporate prayer and praying on behalf of the local church is what Jesus has in mind. The Father in heaven. Now, here's, here's the in heaven thing, right? What's interesting about prayer is that prayer is a symptom of the fall. Did you ever think about that, that prayer is a symptom of the fall? You see, in the garden, the intimacy and the conversation was right there. You're just right there with God in his presence, and you're able to talk with him in that sense. But being kicked out of the garden, being kicked out of the temple, so to speak, there's a distance, there's a distance between me and God now. And there still is, even as a believer, because I'm waiting for the final establishment and return to Eden where I get to face-to-face -face interact with God. So prayer isn't just conversation with God. It's, it's this idea of distance and petition because God is in heaven and I am on earth. God is in heaven and I am on earth. Where the father language uh, it, it emphasizes intimacy and closeness, you can't overdo that. You can't overdo that. Contrary to many understandings of prayer, calling on God as Abba is not daddy. And Abba doesn't mean daddy in the, the, the old sense. It kind of cheapens it in our culture. You have to come to God with both intimacy and reverence. Intimacy and reverence, both are true because God is in heaven and we are on earth. So the address here is important. Not just as an individual, but it's as a community of disciples who are in covenantal relationship because of Christ with the Father. 
Now, we get into the petitions proper, and we're only going to look at the first three today, but these are essential. Now, what you have to understand, what you have to understand about the first three petitions in Greek, uh, this is why you pay me the big bucks to look at the Greek every week, right? Um, but uh, but what you, there's, a, there's a consistent pattern in the first three petitions, verb, subject, and pronoun. And all three first petitions, they are identical as far as grammatical structure. Now you're like, okay, why does that matter? Well, if I have same structure in the first three petitions, that means, at least I think this is what it means, I think it means that they're talking in different ways about the same fundamental reality. Okay, and we'll, we'll unpack that here in a minute. Here's the upshot, though. That last one, your will be done, as in heaven, also upon earth. I think the as in heaven, also upon earth, applies to all three. In other words, I think because of the similar structure, I think Jesus is teaching us the as in heaven, also upon earth part is applying to all of the first three. And we'll explain how does that work. But here's how you need to think about that. We've got two realms. We've got the heavenly realm and what's going on there where God is enthroned and we've got the earthly realm. And so as we walk through this, there's that separation idea again, that there's something going on in heaven that should be happening on earth, but isn't. And that's how these petitions are structured. So first, let's look at the first one. Hallowed be your name. Now, the the the, the Another way to say what that first one is saying, another way to translate that would be, let your name be treated as holy. Uh, really, the word here has the idea of being consecrated. Like you go into the temple and the, the, the furniture in the temple is consecrated. It's devoted to God's service. That's the idea here. Let your name be treated as holy. Let your name be treated as sacred. Let your name be consecrated. And then we tack on the, as in heaven, also upon earth. What does this mean for to let God's name, uh, to ask God for, to, for his name to be consecrated, to be treated as sacred? Well, you have to understand about the name of God in scripture. It's not just that we know his name, Yahweh, but all of what God ties to his name. All of what God himself ties with his name. Turn back to Exodus 3. Turn back to Exodus 3. One of my favorite passages in scripture. And it's highlighting this very reality. Exodus 3.13. So this is the burning bush episode. Uh, Mount Sinai and God's going up to, uh, or Moses going up to God. Right? Remember what... Take off the sandals of your feet. The, the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. It's dedicated for God's purposes. But then as God's commissioning Moses to go, and re, go to, down to Egypt and work for the deliverance of the Israelites, we get this in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and they say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, 
and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Yahweh basically means he is. God is saying, I am who I am. He says that about himself. We say he is. He just is. What does that mean to say, I am who I am? It talks about fundamental and eternality. He just is. He's self-defined. He never had a beginning. He will not have an end. So when we talk about the name of God, rooted in the name that God has given for himself is his inherent being, his inherent eternality, his inherent independence, his, his just beingness. He just is. You can't go back far enough in time before. The, the, there wasn't a time before which God was. He's always been. But not only that, we can see later in Exodus, God ties even more to his name. Switch over to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 and this is right after the golden calf incident. Moses has smashed the first uh, tablets, and then um, God graciously, uh, Moses intercedes for the people of Israel. God graciously says, yes, uh, I'm going to forgive their sins. But in the midst of that, Moses is, is, is basically, I need to see your glory in order to keep going. <laughs> I need to see your glory in order to keep going. And this is what we see. God, God grants that. He doesn't show them the full the full force of his glory, but he does show him part of it. In Exodus 34, verse 5, we see this. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. In other words, Moses was consecrating, treating as sacred God's name. Because what does God tie to his name? His existence, his being, his character. So when we talk about what Jesus is talking about with treating God's name as sacred, as holy. It's treating God himself as sacred, as holy. And we think about, well, okay, remember that phrase, as in heaven, also upon earth. So what's great about scripture is we have a couple opportunities to peek into heaven and see how God's name, because of who he is and what he's done and his character how it is being reverenced in heaven right this very second. So go ahead and turn to the other end of your Bible, to Revelation 4, where John the Apostle gets a, a peek into heaven. And what he sees in chapter 4, he sees the throne. He sees the throne of God in heaven. He sees his majesty. He sees all of the awesomeness of who he is, or at least a picture of it. And what's interesting then is what do you see the angels and not just angels, but redeemed humans doing in heaven? Verse eight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, all are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who, gives, who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That is what is going on in heaven. Not going on on earth, is it? Not going on on earth, is it? The earth is full, even in our own hearts, and our own actions of sin. And what does sin do? Sin fundamentally exalts the name of the creature over the creator. Sin exalts and treats as more sacred, more holy, more valuable myself or some other part of the creation. That's what sin does. Sin drags God's name through the mud. God even talked to Israel in exile in Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23, he talks about how you've defamed my name among the world. And I'm going to act to redeem you. And I'm going to act to redeem you for the sake of my name, for the sake of my name. You see, God acts in history to, for his glory and our greatest good, that's our greatest good, because as God vindicates his name and his glory, we worship that. We are satisfied in that. God's name is not consecrated, not treated as sacred now, but on the earth as it is in heaven. But it will be, it will be, it will be because Zechariah, a couple pages back, actually from Matthew in the Old Testament, Zechariah gives us a peek. In Zechariah 14, 9, and it says this about the future. And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. On that day, Yahweh will be one and his name one. What does that mean? It means that unlike today where People are dragging God's name through the mud. They're worshiping other gods through their sin. They're worshiping themselves that one day on this earth, everyone will worship God. There will be only one God. His name was Yahweh. That will be acknowledged and his name will be honored alone. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer. Let your name be treated as sacred as in heaven, also upon earth. In other words, we're saying, do what you've promised to do. Do what you've promised to do. Now, God's already promised to do it, and he will do it, but he graciously brings us into the process and says, you get to pray for that, and because of those prayers, God uses those prayers as means to bring it about. What a privilege to do so. We're praying that for the future, but there's a, there's a reality in which we, we can pray that even now, right? Uh, that, that as an individual, I want my life to honor God's name, to treat God's name as sacred. But it's not just about me. Remember, this is a communal prayer. It's about the local church. I want all of us as a church to reverence God's name, to treat it as sacred and holy in our individual lives as we push off sin, as we pursue righteousness, we honor God's 
name. So it's both a future prayer or praying for God, for that future reality of God to treat his name as sacred in all the earth, but it's also a present prayer for ourselves and for our fellow disciples around us. So that's the first petition. Let your name be treated as sacred as in heaven, also upon earth. Second petition, your kingdom come. And we would tack on as in heaven, also upon earth. Now this, this idea of kingdom, we're a little more familiar with because we spent, that's what Matthew's all about. It's, it's, it's the gospel. Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom, right? It's talking about the good news of the kingdom. And we've talked about this, this is the storyline of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about the kingdom. That's the main thread, the plot line thread of everything holds on to. Adam was supposed to be a steward king ruling over creation under the overall kingship of God. Israel as a beachhead kingdom uh, was to be God's son, to be God's kingly and priestly nation in the world. David, the ultimate Davidic king, is the king that God has appointed to rule not only over Israel, but all the nations of the world to restore things back to the way they were. And Eden, and we know that Jesus is that king now, that ultimate Davidic king who will one day reign from a throne in Jerusalem, not only over Israel, but all the nations of the world in a physical and spiritual kingdom. Both are true. So in that future state, that idea of God's kingdom coming, what are we really praying for? We want Christ on the throne in Jerusalem over the nation of Israel, over the whole nations of the world. Why do we want that? We want that because of justice. We want that because of bounty that God will bring in the world, the restoration of all things, the, the, the communion that we have with God through Christ, doing what we were designed to do in a perfect way. God's kingdom is in heaven now, isn't it? God reigns undisputed in, king, uh, in heaven. We can even see pictures. Even when Satan shows up in heaven, he shows up, uh, but God is in control, and there's no question, right? There is absolutely no question who's in charge. But on earth, God, uh, God's kingdom isn't manifested. Yes, God is over these things. He is ultimately uncontested, and yet his kingdom is not manifested on earth. In fact, what we see even in Matthew 4, you remember back to Matthew 4, 8 through 9, when uh, Jesus was being tempted, the devil offered all the kingdoms of the world to Christ. And there was no dispute, Jesus didn't dispute that that was his to offer. In fact, from the rest of scripture, we know he is the God of this world, the ruler of this world for right now. And as we've been talking about people's sin, right? Their sin is fundamentally rebellion against God's kingdom and God reigning. And yet Jesus is saying to the disciples, pray for God's kingdom, for God is over all, has his chosen king on the throne. That's what we're praying for. And God has already said it's going to happen. 
If you were to look at Daniel 2, 44 and 45, or Daniel 7, 13 through 14, you would see, remember that, that picture in Daniel of the statue, the beautiful statue, and we got all these kingdoms and these empires in the world, and then a stone not cut out for with hands smashes the feet, smashes the whole, uh, uh, the whole statue, and the stone grows into a mountain that fills the earth. That's a picture of God's kingdom subsuming the whole earth. That's going back to the original design. We can even peek ahead in Revelation uh, 11, Re- Revelation 11, 15. It says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So what are we praying for when we pray as disciples, let your kingdom come as in heaven also upon earth. We are praying for that future reality to come. We are praying for that future reality to come. We are praying for justice. We are praying for the restoration of all things in the world. We are praying for God's glory. We are praying for Christ's glory. We are praying for the subjugation of all rebels against the king's reign. Now you might say, well, okay, that seems really future. Is there anything for now? Yes. Because when you have a kingdom, you have a realm, like land, a ruler, like the king, and the ruled, the people. And who's going to be in that kingdom? Those who submit themselves to Christ as king. Those who repent from allegiance to sin and self and submit allegiance to Jesus as king. And so really, this is is a, a missionary prayer. The way I pray it is this. Lord, would you please sweep up more kingdom citizens? Kingdom's not here now. Uh, the church is sort of an outpost or an embassy of the kingdom, but it's not the kingdom. But we do uh, are advancing and pushing forward by God's grace through the gospel, through the power of the spirit. Uh, the king, uh, the, we're, we're seeking the sweeping in of more kingdom citizens, just as we, by grace, have been swept into that kingdom. So it does have a present reality as well. So we've seen, what does it mean to, well, let's just let your name be treated as sacred, as in heaven, also upon earth. Let your kingdom come, as in heaven, also upon earth. And then finally, let your will happen, as in heaven, also upon earth. Now, we have to kind of distinguish here for a minute. There's there's two wills of God that the scripture talks about. There's two wills. One sense of that will is what God has decreed to pass, what he's predestined and planned from all eternity to happen in history. And that's going to happen, uncontested. That's going to happen. That's what we call God's decreed will. So I'm going to teach you some terms. This is actually fairly important to distinguish. So what God has predestined and planned to pass from all eternity, it's going to happen. That's God's decreed will. It's going to happen. Then there's God's revealed will. Revealed will. What do we mean by that? Well, the revealed will of God is what he commands, what he desires. That's what 
the revealed will of God is. Uh, you can actually see this. We won't spend time here, but Deuteronomy 29, 29, after giving the law, God's revealed will, and then he kind of gives, God gives some hints of like, things aren't going to go so well for Israel in the future. And that would leave Israel with a question of like, hey, wait, what, what's going to happen? And what does he say? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed are for us and for our children that we may do all of the things in this law. And given, given the surrounding context of the Sermon on the Mount, I think that Jesus is referring to God's revealed will here, meaning God's commands, God's desires, uh, God's uh, plan, for right, plan and purpose for righteousness that is expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's what the prayer is for. Let your will happen as in heaven also upon earth. God's will in that sense is already happening in heaven, isn't it? You could look at Psalm 103, 20 through 21, and it describes how the angels are in heaven instantly doing God's bidding. No questions asked. It's happening. Right? What God desires to happen in heaven, it happens instantly. Clearly, that's not happening on earth, right? Not even in our own hearts. We strive, we purpose, we go that direction, and yet that's what, the sermon on, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us, and yet we know that's not here yet. But it's going to be. It's going to be. Uh, Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 3, tw- um, uh, 3.13. He says, By his promise, we're waiting uh, for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Concrete righteousness in the way that the Sermon on the Mount is talking about, where actual actions of righteousness being done by people, but not in partial measure, fully and completely and perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what disciples are praying for. They're praying for that future reality of the earth being totally filled with people doing God's will as instantly as it is done in heaven. And we want that. We want that for, think about the dimensions of it. This is both a future and a current prayer, right? We, we want that. We want to obey God perfectly. We do. We long for that if we've been given the spirit of God in our hearts. If we don't long for that, there's a problem. We can talk about that later. But, uh, but if we're in Christ, we desire to do God's will. We want to do it. We want to be righteous and we know we fall short but we want to. We want that future reality. So we're praying for that future reality, but we're also praying it for us now. I want to increasingly do what God is calling me to do as an individual, but then this is not just individual. It's corporate. I want uh, our local church to be doing what it is called to do in the world now. I want to do God's will. I want you to do God's will. And you see how these three first petitions, they work together, don't they? Really, they're talking about the future But they're talking about different aspects of the same reality. When God's kingdom comes, that's when God's name will be perfectly honored. When the future kingdom comes, that's when God's will will be done in the future. And yet in the church now, as an embassy of that future kingdom, we pray these things as well. To treat God's name as holy, to to evangelize that, that more kingdom citizens might be swept in and that we might obey God's will. Notice how the prayer starts. Remember verses 7 and 8? 
What was it focused on? It was focused on people's needs. That's what the prayer started with. That was the purpose of the prayer. People were manipulating, uh, the, 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 the foreigners were manipulating um, God or trying to, to get what they needed. Now, Jesus isn't going to ignore needs. We're going to talk about them next week. But what does he do? He places them under the kingdom and God's plan. All of those first three petitions are really talking about where God is going in the world, where God is going in history. And that's the way we should pray. When we pray, it's not wrong to pray for needs, but it's wrong to put our personal needs. And we're not denying that there, there, there are genuine needs, but it's wrong to put those personal needs above prioritizing and orienting our lives with where God is going in the world. And isn't that much more grand, a vision of prayer than just, all right, I've got this need. I better come to the vending machine and get what I want out of it. No, God graciously brings us into where he is going in history and allows us to pray. He's pleased in some mystery to use our prayers as means of carrying forward that plan for the world. And that's a way more exhilarating way to pray. To see God is going here. I want those things. Those are, those are, the, the, those are my highest needs above my need. My greatest need is for the kingdom to come even above my personal needs. And that's what Jesus is saying. Pattern your prayer that way. Prioritize God's honor, God's glory, where he is going in history. And then you can get to the needs later that are legitimate. But here's the thing, and you'll see this next week, even those personal needs then become shaped and controlled by the kingdom direction. Right? God is going here. Well, if that's my greatest need above all other needs, then that redefines and reshapes what I understand to be my needs and desires and wants. And I bring those under God's plan. Are your greatest desires in prayer the fulfillment of God's purposes for the world? Kingdom is the greatest need above your personal needs. And I would encourage you, just try it this week, even today. Try to start your prayers thinking first about God's kingdom, God's name, God's will, where he is going in history before you get into the needs. Get into the needs. Depend on the Father who is generous and good, who will give you those things. Let's start with where he's going, his priorities in the world. As we close, let's go ahead. I want us to pray and to practice. Now, I'm the one that's going to be praying, but you guys are praying along with me as a community, as the local church. And let me try to give you some, how do you pray this way? What does it sound like? Let's, let's go before the Lord now and do this. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have brought us into that relationship as sons and daughters through Christ, and that we can call you Father. We thank you that we, you brought us into the new covenant. You've given us your spirit to, so that we can obey, that we can seek you, and we can know you. We thank you for those things. Father, we desire that your name 
your matchless name, your holy name, would be treated as sacred in this world. Lord, we see day in and day out how your name is dragged through the mud. People don't even know you, and they are despising your name. They don't even know what they're doing, oh Lord God. Lord, pray that you would rescue them. Lord, give us the opportunity to speak with them. And Lord, grant them mercy to see how awesome and amazing and great your name and your character and your being truly are. Lord, please allow that. We thank you that you one day your name will be one as in heaven, also upon earth. We long for that. Would you do it? Would you bring that about, O Lord God? We know it's going to happen, and yet we ask you, because you've told us to ask you, would you cause that to happen? Lord, would your kingdom come? Would you send Christ again to reign on his throne over this whole world, establishing justice and righteousness and bounty and joy over all the earth. We long for that, and yet we know there are many who are not yet kingdom citizens, and that you would, we would ask for your mercy on them, that you would draw them to yourself. This week, as we encounter people, Lord, help us to speak of you. Help us to speak of your kingdom, and please rescue people even as you have graciously rescued us. Lord, let your will happen. Let your will, your righteous will, your law happen on this earth. Lord, your law is broken every moment of every day, and Lord, you are thereby despised. But Lord, we, we, we personally, we as a, as a church, we both individually and corporately want to do your will. We want to do what you want for, uh, what you would have us do as a church. Help us to be faithful as a church to what you've called us to be and to do. Help us to not deviate from that. Help us to be anchored in your scriptures and to obey what you've called us to do. Lord, we pray um, that and long for the day when the new heavens and the new earth, they will be filled with righteousness. We will obey perfectly, and all in that future reality will obey perfectly. Would you bring that about? Would you cause that to happen? We know you will, and we want that. And Lord, help us to bring. We do have needs, and you know them, and we thank you that you know them. Would you bring those needs? Would you help our understanding of our needs be shaped by your kingdom and where you're going in the world? Guard us from being selfish or manipulative in prayer. Help us to long for what you long for, to love what you love and hate what you hate. We trust you and we love you. Thank you for this morning and thank you for these people. Bless them as they go. In Christ's name, amen.